Chapter 3 of The Three Friends, A Story of Rugby in the Forties, by Arthur Gray Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 A Hidden Rock Next half-year came with its long, dismal weeks from February to Easter, a time dreaded by masters and abhorred by schoolboys, for in the first place nothing was going on, only a little fives, hare and hounds, and house-jumping, the last intended mainly to discipline, duck and drench, the new fellows, who come home shivering in white wet trousers, and are thus saved from growing cocky and upsetting. And secondly, every one, masters included, followed the cue of the weather, and developed gifts for being disagreeable, just for want of something better to do. Worst of all was the annual visitation of epidemics, that took this opportunity of looking up those who had escaped before, and seeing that the great mump and measle tax, so familiar to Englishmen, was duly paid. They had all returned. Gordon, who came from Scotland a day after the others, was greeted by Fleming with the news that Twining, their constant friend, was in the sixth, and that they were both promoted into the fifth, and that each would now have a single study. And I'm in top passage, Alan, with all the swells. First rate, isn't it? But Gordon said nothing, only looked grim. The thought of the swells did not please him. Presently, as he unpacked his book box, he took out a round package and handed it to Fleming. That's for you, he said. Real Aberdeen. Shortbread in Scotland forever, said the other. You dear old friend, but don't you like me to be in top passage? I'm not a swell, replied Gordon briefly. They're a bad lot, and I don't like them. But how about work? Do we go on as usual? Of course, said Fleming, except he looked embarrassed. Burden asked me to work with him sometimes. Gordon frowned. Burden was a noted card player with little principle and pleasant manners, just the fellow to attract Fleming and lead him into mischief. Well, he said at length, you'll find the old bear in his den when wanted. Don't quite forget me, Flem. What nonsense, said Fleming, but he looked uneasy. They had often talked of this card-playing set, who lived apart from the rest of the house, caring nothing for the games, and voted them a lot of beasts. But this burden had a way with him, when he liked, half flattering, half caressing, and always graceful, which was attractive to Fleming, who, though a good enough fellow on the whole, when it cost him nothing, yet adored manners. Like the Greeks, whom he resembled so much in form, he loved beauty first, and virtue, at least in the common sense, a good way second. Just the wrong order, but then he was at heart a Greek. And so the new departure began from that night. Fleming was drawn into the loose set, of which Burden was the chief, and soon began to change color. He saw little of Gordon, and when he did go to his study, was restless and unnatural. Sometimes they came to words. "'You're so stodgy,' Fleming said one day. "'You can't see the fun of anything unless it's in the school rules or the Ten Commandments.' "'I hate gambling,' answered Gordon. "'It rots a house worse than anything. Those fellows cheat, lie, bully, and swagger, as if they were real swells, which they are not. How can you stand them?' "'But what can one say when they ask you to come and play with them?' asked Fleming. "'Say,' said Gordon. "'Say no, of course.' Think of spoiling your life here for a beast-like burden. And then Fleming broke away, feeling wretched, 
he had not the strength to break away from them, his life was altered. This new set cared nothing for games, voted all compulsion to play tyranny, and lived only for suppers, high feeding, betting on racehorses and cards. Not that they played or betted high. Schoolboy purses are at their deepest shallow, but when out of cash they borrowed from anyone who would trust them, or wrote home lying letters about house subscriptions or necessary expenses in the study for more candles, binding books, or other accidental damages, and this was called drawing the governor. And then at last, owing to a run of ill luck at cards and a bad bet on a horse, strongly recommended by Burden, who had his private information, Fleming found himself with several debts of honor, which he was bound to pay, and no money. He went to Burden, who flatly refused to lend him anything, reminding him with a smile that they, the set, never borrowed of one another. It was bad form. He went to another, who said he'd think about it, to a third who would have been delighted had he not made the same unfortunate mistake about that tip of Burden's, and recommended him to try old Grumps, a pet name in the set for Gordon. So, with shame in his heart, Fleming went to Gordon, told him all his story, and asked for a loan of two pounds. Gordon looked up from a battle-piece he was drawing of the famous Highlanders caught by French lancers in the long corn at Quatre Bras, gazed for a moment on his friend, and said, So it's come to this. They've plucked you sooner than I expected. The blackguards. But why not write home and say you are in debt? I can't, said the other, briefly. It would kill my father, who is ill, to know the truth, and I would never lie to him. You cannot lie, but to beg you are... Stop, he said, as Fleming was passionately leaving. I was a brute. You shall have the money. There, it's not quite my last penny, but very near it. However, I'll manage somehow. No thanks, but I say, don't you go with these fellows any more. They're cads, more or less, every one of them. This was a long speech for Gordon, who was often called the silent one in the house, but he was strongly moved. Fleming thanked him, took the money, and said merely, I wouldn't take it, Alan, but I must, squeezed his hand, and turned the subject. They were both too proud, the one to make conditions, the other to accept a favor upon any conditions. Then, as the bell rang for prayers, they went down to hall. Here a surprise awaited them. When prayers were over, the headmaster, who was standing, tall, handsome, and dignified as usual, at the top of the hall, between the head of the house and Twining, spoke to the assembled house much as follows. I'm sorry to say that I have heard something which I would not willingly believe of you. There is much gambling, I am informed, in the house, that of kind far exceeding the limits usual at public schools. Least of all should I have expected to hear of it in a house where the memory of Dr. Arnold is still reverenced. It is, let me tell you, a very disgraceful thing. It is, a proud toss of his head, fatal to the character. It makes a boy, even more than a man, false and mean and despicable in all his dealings. Gordon gave a side look at Fleming. And sooner or later it is ruinous to the house where such practices are tolerated. I warn you, therefore, a commanding sweep of the hand, to expect no mercy if any one after this is detected gambling. And, a look right and left, 
I count upon the six to aid me in suppressing it. Then starting, as if stung by something, he turned to Twining, who had been seen to mutter to himself, and saying in dignified tones, Twining, will you follow me? He strode out of the hall. What happened in the study was described by Twining afterwards to the friends who waited for his return. What did I say to him? Nothing. I only muttered. Twining's whispers had something of the breeze about them. That we will, old boy, and he heard it. What happened? Why, when we got into the study, he turned upon me like a panther. I shan't forget his look in a hurry, and said, Yes, what did you mean by that? Is that the way you address your headmaster? And then? I stammered out something about not dreaming he would hear me. I only meant that I'd do all he asked, and something more. There was nothing I wouldn't do for the house and him. And he? Cooled down a bit, and with a slight twinkle in his eye, said, And do you think that was a proper way in which to address me? No, sir, I said, of course not. I'm awfully sorry, but somehow it slipped out. I've a way of speaking to myself. And then? Oh, he turned away. He was laughing, you know, and had to recover himself. Then at last, turning round, he said, Yes, it's a bad habit talking to yourself aloud. Don't let it occur again. Good night. And out I went, feeling an idiot. Lucky for burden, I didn't meet him in the passage. With that, the whole body of friends exploded with laughter. Even the grave head of the house, a man with whiskers who loved righteousness, was tempted into a smile. The others almost cried with laughing. The reaction after Tate's speech was too much for them. They had to leave. Well, said Twiney to himself, Tate's a brick anyhow, if I'm a fool. Here goes. Fag. A fag came promptly. Twining was worshipped in the house. Send Fleming here. And Fleming came. I say, said Twining, what on earth has made you go along with that lot of fellows up there? A mean, low, miserable set of cads and blacklegs. If I could only catch them. You heard what Tate said. Ruining the house. Of course they will. But look here, young'un. This will never do. You've got to do something for the house when I'm gone. You've got to keep the games going and keep its character up and all the rest of it. Low in your form, too, I hear. Of course. Thinking of your blessed betting book. It'll never do. You'll be a leader some day, and then you'll know what I mean. Come now. You bring your books here and learn in my study, unless you like better to work with Gordon. Well, think it over. Remember, I'm your friend, or will be, if you'll let me. As to those fellows... And the interview was over. Fleming was deeply moved, though his calm, fine features gave no outward sign. In his heart he felt the truth of all that had been said that night against the set, and he resolved, after paying his debts, to be quit of them forever. It was made the easier by Twining's offer. No one would dare to speak against Twining, whose skill in games made him a general favorite, while for cleverness he was one of the hopes of the school. However, he slept upon it, and the next morning went to see Gordon, and tell him of his resolve. On his way thither he found a lot of small fellows looking at the passage wall, where it was written in large letters, Who sneaked? Gordon. He stopped. Who wrote that, he asked. Nobody knows, but everyone says it's true, was the answer. Gordon's father was here two days ago, and he must have told Tate. Gordon hates Burden. It's an infernal lie, said Fleming, and passed on. 
In his study he found his friend sitting with a paper in his hand, and on it written the same words that were on the passage wall. Who sneaked? Gordon. The brutes, said Fleming. It's all they're doing. Clever, said Gordon, grimly. They say I told my father, and he told Tate. It's like them. Of course it's a lie, said Fleming, but how to prove it? I wonder who it was told Tate. Gordon was silent. Do you know Alan? Yes, I do. Who was it? Gordon said nothing for some time. Then at last he answered. You won't tell anyone. I won't. Honor bright? Fleming nodded. Well, it was Mackie told his mother, and she wrote to Tate. Father heard about it from Mrs. Mackie, who learnt it from her son, and he stopped here on his way to town to tell me and warn me against them. Of course he asked me no questions, and I never said a word to him. And what if they cut you, said Fleming? He had been so used to popularity that to be cut even by fellows you despise seemed to be a hard trial. Gordon smiled scornfully. Oh, I'll manage, said Gordon. If Mackey's a sneak, I'm not going to be a sneak also. Look here, Flem, showing the Quattro Brass picture finished, that fellow in the middle, there, was my ancestor. He had a dozen wounds, and yet recovered. So shall I. So they parted. The house was in a fever of excitement. Buzzing groups were discussing the matter in the passages. They stopped as Fleming neared them, but went at it again as he passed on. And in the end, from one of those ways of suspicion, which at times pass over boys and men, things turned out as Fleming predicted. The house, that is the majority, who followed one another blindfolded, cut Gordon. He was not liked, and little as they loved Burden, they hated sneaks more, and as Gordon was known to be hot against the whole gaming set for Fleming's sake, why shouldn't he have told his father, and his father told Tate? And besides, if he didn't sneak, who did? He was just the fellow to do it. He was so surly-looking. Ergo, he was to be cut, and he was cut, the feeling being carefully nursed by the set, who had set the lie in motion, and last not least by Mackie, who had been frightened out of his wits, on learning his mother's indiscretion. On discovering the cut, Gordon's conduct was characteristic. He did not attempt to clear himself or get into a rage or swear. Instead of it, he went to a butcher, who had a lean dog called Scraggs, whom he had often fed out of pity, and proposed to hire it. The butcher had no objection. The dog, who was a rare varmint dog, still less. And Scraggs and Gordon used to go out hunting water rats on half-holidays, and have fine sport together. In these expeditions, which reminded Gordon of his Scotch otter hunting, the habits of the animals being somewhat familiar, Fleming, who stuck to him like a leech, was his constant companion. They were also joined before long by one O'Brien, a loose-limbed Irish fellow with the lightest of hearts and gayest of spirits, who would hunt anything from a rat to an elephant with the keenest pleasure. He was also a cricketer of some mark, and as such a friend of Fleming, and like an Irishman, he was always again the government. But in this matter it was the sporting instinct which drew him, and so these three, with Scraggs, who had learnt to follow them at a distance to avoid suspicion, had a fine time of it at the river, where... But this requires another chapter. End of chapter 3